Hello, and welcome to Learn to Love, a show where we talk all about things you can do to build a better, stronger relationship. Our team is powered by passionate volunteers looking to bring forward the best of what they know to help you stay together. Love is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Our podcast, articles, and videos feature insights from the latest research on relationship psychology, intimacy, conflict resolution, parenting, and more. You don't need to go in blind and make the same mistakes as those around you. Check us out on our brand new website at learnlove.ca or listen on our podcast, the Learn to Love podcast. Thank you for joining us in our vision to create healthier relationships and stronger families. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm super excited to be welcoming you back to this brand new episode of the Learn to Love podcast. This podcast episode is going to be all about continuing our conversation on habits, roles in a relationship, how habits form into roles, exchanges between our partners. We're going to also apply this to parenting, how you can use habits or at least your knowledge on how habits are established to help you with parenting specifically to stop troubled behaviors before they continue and get much bigger. This is going to relate to our conversation on limits. We are going to also use some analogies to help you understand what we're talking about and visualize it. And finally, we're going to talk about how like habits sometimes are problematic uh, and that the more we do them, the more likely we are to continue doing that thing. And also the more likely it can be to, to start to get boring if we've done something for so long again and again, and how this might make your relationship seem a little bit boring. I don't know if you've ever experienced if you've been doing something for a long time with your partner, or maybe you've been living together for a long time and things are starting to feel a little bit like, ugh, you know, it's the same thing. I don't know every day. Maybe you are feeling this way. Um, If so, not to worry, we're going to talk about habit cues and how you can use them to bring back a lot of excitement to your relationship. If you don't feel this way and you think your relationship is super exciting, that's awesome. We are going to keep the discussion on habit cues going so that you can apply them to your relationship to keep it exciting in the future. So thank you so much for joining me and let's get right into the content. In our last episode, we talked about habits being things that we do without thinking about them. That's the really big thing. It's that you do it without thinking about it. We talked about why habits occur and some neuroscience, also some anthropology to help you understand why habits are so important. So Again, let's just review that really quickly. The big concept from the last episode was about neuroplasticity. It's a a concept in neuroscience, which means that the brain changes. We use plasticity because plastic, you know, you can melt down and change the shape. You can have a whole bunch of different uses for the same plastic. Now, it's the same thing with the brain. 
scientists are finding more and more with new studies that our brain is actually very, very flexible and has tremendous potential to recover from injury and a whole bunch of other things because of how plastic it is, okay? The big concept here was that neurons that wire together fire together, okay? Neurons that wire together fire together. Neurons that fire together end up wiring together. That's the big idea. And why is that? It's to make it more effective and productive. So, for example, let's say that you want to make a certain sound, okay? Like you're learning to speak and you make a certain sound. You, when, when we first learn to speak, it takes a lot of our energy to think about the sounds that we're making. But soon you want to make a sound like the letter T or you want to say the word the and you can just do it really easily without thinking about where your tongue is in your mouth and how your muscles are moving. That's because the neuron, the sequence of neurons that had to become activated for that sound to be made are going together. They all are happening in a sequence together, so you don't have to think about it. It's like you drop that first domino and the rest of them fell with it, okay? Those neurons, if they fire together so much, they're going to wire really close with each other so that they can keep firing together in the future. And that makes it so much simpler for you. Basically, the more we do something like walking, okay, walking takes like 200 muscles, I think, that have to work in culmination to get us walking. Now, instead of you thinking, oh, I need to lift this muscle, I need to drop this one, the sequence of firing to those different muscles to walk, to make the walking motion, is going to happen all at once because we formed a habit of doing it that way. We can walk and at the same time we can focus on talking to somebody, focus on thinking about something other than walking. That's the whole point of habits is that they take mental resources away from our brains like dedicated to the task that became a habit so that we can use it for other functions, okay? So I, I'm sure if, you, if you've seen a toddler learn to walk, they're really, really focused at the beginning. But once they get it, um, you know, as an adult, you know, an adult doesn't really think so much about walking. It's habitual. It's just habits. It just happens without them really thinking about it so that they can think about other things instead, now, this habit formation is really harmful sometimes in the case of driving and cell phone use. We're going to tie that, we're going to tie those both together right now through our habit of checking our phones when our phones go off. So, a lot of us have our phones ringer on and we drive. And when we hear that ringer, the cue, the ringer, urges us to do the habit that we've done thousands of times before. I heard that America, in, in the United States, cell phones are checked nearly 10 billion times a day, almost 50 times on average per person. We have a very strong cue, that ringer or the cell phone buzzing and checking the phone. Okay, the cue makes the action without us thinking about it. That's a habit. The habit is cue making an action without so much cognitive resources going 
into that. So if, if we have a very strong action of checking the cell phone when we hear the cue, we may end up doing it without thinking about it while we're driving, which is really, really, really dangerous because we have two habits going along together. The habit of checking that cell phone when we hear the ringer along the habit of driving. Now, driving is very habitual too. We talked about this in the last episode. When you want to turn, for example, you want to change lanes. Do you consciously think, okay, shoulder, signal, shoulder check, mirror, mirror, turn, mirror, mirror, take off the turn signal, you know, maybe check the shoulder again, check the mirrors again, and then, you know, keep driving. When somebody first learns to drive, they are so focused on those mirrors, on that turn signal, on thinking, 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 what do I do next? It's not coming naturally to them. They have to really think about it. Because that neuronal arrangement, those neurons firing together in combination to make all those events happen sequentially and together, the cue okay, of wanting to turn, boom, 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 that action chain being executed as one. That's what's going on with habits. It's a series of actions that are co-occurring together sequentially, okay? Like um, wanting to walk, that action chain of all those muscles firing in a sequence when you're a toddler it's very hard you have to learn through a lot of experimentation to get it our brain is also rewarding us with dopamine as toddlers when we learn how to do it properly also for my parents cheering um to push that more we're going to talk about rewards and habits formation a little bit later but um just have that understanding okay habit cue response and the response happens like without thinking about it so much. That is a habit because those neurons are firing together and wiring together to make that chain of firing occur without much thinking. Now, why is this so dangerous? Because if we drive so much and we have a habit of how we drive, we have a habit, for example, of stopping when we see a stop sign. I hope you have this habit or slowing down by putting our foot on the brake and knowing how much to push the brake pedal without thinking about it, we are not going to spend a lot of thinking efforts while we drive, especially around our neighborhoods. Have you ever driven somewhere close to your house and forgotten like how you got there? Like You just got somewhere and you didn't realize how you got there? You weren't thinking about it? Why is this so problematic? Where do the majority of accidents happen? I want you to think about it. In North America, where are the majority of accidents occurring? Are they occurring far away from our houses? Are they occurring close to our houses, within a few kilometers of our houses? What do you think? Do you think it's far or close? Well, before we give you the answer, let's think about the reasons why. So we would... Think that most accidents happen close to our house because a lot of the driving occurs close to our house. Like, how often do you drive far from your house? The other thing, though, is you would know the roads close to your house really well because you've driven around them the most, right? So, like, it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense to have an accident close to your house if you know the roads so well, if you've driven on them a thousand times. Take a guess. It is on the roads closest to our house, guys, within a few kilometers of our house where the majority of auto accidents occur, which doesn't make any sense. If you think about it, 
we should know those roads because we've driven on them so much. But why does it occur there? It's because we have driven there so much that we formed a habit of how we drive. We are giving almost no conscious thought to driving on those roads. Why is this a problem? Because you have a habit of putting your foot at the same point on the accelerator with the same pressure every time you drive across a certain road and a child comes running on the road in front of you, God forbid, okay? But it happens sometimes. Or a, a car reverses out of the driveway and do we put our foot on the brake? At a hope, with a car reversing out the driveway, for anyone who's ever hit a car reversing out of its driveway, often too late. We are thinking so little about driving, so, so little, because it's a habit. Our foot is on the accelerator in that, in that position with that amount of pressure, out of habit, not out of thought, and it's hard to change habits. So when the car reverses all of a sudden, our foot stays all too often by the time we realize it's too late and we've hit the car. Now, a new driver would be, I would suggest, a lot less likely to hit the car reversing because it's thinking a lot more about driving. It's paying way more attention to driving because its brain, not having a lot of experience in, in driving, is putting a lot of cognitive resources towards it because it doesn't have those connections, those habit-forming wire together, fire together um, connections um, to not afford so much cognitive resources to driving. So a really big thing for you to think about when you're driving, how much do you think about the road? I encourage you to try think about the road more, to pay a little bit more attention and do so less out of habit for our own and others' safety. Okay, so this was a great uh, review from the last episode and a continuation on our discussion. Another thing that's so important, which we'll touch on again here, is repetition. So remember we said if somebody has a stroke, okay, God forbid, but let's say somebody has a stroke and they lose control over their fine motor skills in one hand. Suddenly it becomes a lot harder to use one hand after the stroke. Well, that's because the neurons that had wired together in the part of their brain responsible for controlling that part of the body have changed their alignment with each other due to the stroke. For example, let's say there was oxygen deprivation to that part of the brain and the neurons started to die in that area. One of the connection points is now not operating optimally, like not as effective, and the connection isn't going through. So that signal to use the hand now isn't working because part of the, the neuron firing chain to make it, those neurons that wired together, okay, are disrupted. Now, what do we do in this situation? What would a therapist, an occupational therapist do? They're going to have you repeat exercises using your hand again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, okay? Maybe a hundred times a day, every day, for a whole year. Thousands of times of repetition. We're going to open and close that hand. Hold a pen. Hold a ball in the hand. Squeeze something, okay? Thousands of times. Why? Remember, neurons that fire together, wire together. After enough time, eventually... 
we're going to make a new chain of neurons in our brain through all that firing to try to do those actions. Every time we do an action, there are neurons firing in our brain to make that action, okay? Muscles are controlled by our nerves, which are controlled by firing of neurons in our brain, okay? So if we, if we force that action to occur again and again and again and again and again, forcing it, I mean, like, like not in a bad way. I mean, like, you want to write, for example, with a hand, after, with your hand after having a stroke, you're going to really try hard, really focus on making a sentence or making a word or tracing the shape of letters. In kindergarten, what do children do again and again and again? They trace letters. If you've ever seen your young child, or I don't know if you remember that far, but do you remember those worksheets where you used to trace the shape of letters again and again and again, thousands of times until it became habitual? When you want to make a capital A, no longer do you think line, line, you know, then the line that goes through it, it's just natural because those neurons, guys, the shape of the A, the combination of firing of muscles to make that A happens naturally because you made a habit of moving your muscles in that way to make the letter, okay? Repetition, repetition, repetition. It's the same thing in speech language pathology. If you have a lisp, if you're pronouncing something incorrectly or you want to change your accent, you repeat something again and again and again, the correct alignment of muscles to make the sound, you almost force that alignment, not in a bad way, but just by like really paying conscious effort to how you're making the sound until it sticks. How do things stick? By repetition. Now, this is really important for our relationships, this idea here that when you repeat things long enough, they tend to stick because neurons, again, that fire together, wire together, behaviors that we get comfortable with, we end up doing more. Eventually, we do things just out of habit. Now, this is absolutely critical for our relationships because often we know that something's bad or harmful. We know that calling our partner a certain name is harmful or addressing somebody in a certain way is harmful or Treating somebody like a scapegoat, we talked about scapegoating in earlier episodes. That's when you put all the blame on the other person. He makes all your, doesn't have to be all your life's problems, like a huge amount of your life's problems, someone else's fault, because you don't want to take personal responsibility, and you want to just say it's their fault, okay? If you do that for long enough, it's going to stick. You're going to have a habit of continuously blaming this person, and it's going to stick. And it's, it's really problematic because people often form roles in a relationship that they stay in in a long time, not that they're good for them, but just because they stick, okay? Roles. If your role in the relationship is the scapegoat, the person that always takes the blame, okay, you might be, it, it might be increasingly harder to change this role after so many times when you were blamed for something that, that you weren't responsible for, that it's now sticking. It's now a habit. You have a habit of being the scapegoat and somebody else has the habit of making you the scapegoat. We often stay in the roles that we have habitually entered in the relationship for many, many, many years. Unless we continuously, continuously set our limits 
push, 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 okay? Every time, remember, consistent, clear, okay? Sorry, consistently enforced, clear, and well-advertised until our role changes and we form new habits in new roles. That's the big message from the last episode. And here again, that you can change habits, okay? You can change habits by repeating, 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 there being some sort of reward for that action. So, for example, like, if it feels better for you if you're not blamed for something, that's going to be a reward for you, okay? And if your partner is happier because you're going to stay in the relationship, if they're doing that, it creates a reward for them, okay? But the biggest thing is just repeat, 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 okay? And we'll, we'll talk about this more a little bit later. But I want to push here the idea that we often do things that we know are bad for us, okay? And I want to use an example of this that a lot of us can relate to, which is smoking, okay? Smoking tobacco. Now, in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, Reader's Digest released an article about how harmful cigarettes are and cigarette smoke is to health, okay? And millions of people were reading Reader's Digest at the time. And the, the article was there in the 50s, okay? Smoking is harmful for you. But people weren't ready to understand that, to, to accept it. Okay, 1950s. A lot of people continued to smoke. And then what happened in 1964? If you're old enough to remember this, or I'm sure you can ask your parents or grandparents about this, if they remember it, in 1964, there was the U.S. Surgeon General's report on smoking and cancer. And this report cited a whole bunch of research evidence to make it extremely clear, abundantly clear, that smoking causes cancer, okay? That smoking can decrease life expectancy, cause a whole bunch of health problems, and cause cancer. 1964. 1964, okay? And then what happened? In 1966, there were a lot of changes to smoking, such as that they were, in some regions, like in the United States, they would be warnings put on labels on cigarette packages or they, they would be some sort of advertising campaign on the dangers of smoking or pamphlets given out by public health offices. But nine years later in 1973, the rate of smoking in the United States didn't decrease. The amount of people who knew that smoking was harmful for them increased substantially. People, a lot of people became aware of it for the first time in the mid-60s and early 70s. But the amount of people who still smoked was consistent. In fact, cigarette sales actually increased until the 80s, until 1980s. That is 30 years after that McLean's article, sorry, after that Reader's Digest article and 20 years after that Surgeon General's report, people have known that smoking was bad in the 60s. By the end of the 60s, many Americans and around the world, many people started to become aware of the idea that smoking is very bad for them, but they continued to smoke for 20 years. Sales went up, okay? And yes, smoking is addictive, and, and yes, it affects the brain, okay? And, and yes, some people liken it to, to heroin in, in terms of its power of addiction, 
But I just want to put the idea forward here that people continue to smoke for 20 years even though they knew that it was bad for them. And I argue that a big reason for that was because of their habits of smoking. For example, every time they went into a bar, maybe they were used to just lighting a cigarette. It was part of their habit, okay? Anytime that they were, you know, they would go have a coffee, they would light a cigarette because it was just part of their habit. Coffee, cigarettes, okay? Bar, cigarettes. Every time they would go to the office, when people used to smoke in offices, maybe they thought that it was cool, okay? Or maybe every time that they went shopping, they were used to seeing their, they, they had an aisle that they'd always go to, like in the grocery store, the convenience store, and they always knew, like, when I buy bread or when I get milk, I get cigarettes, and it was just part of the habit, and they just kept doing it because habits tend to stick, tend to stick for 20 years of preventable deaths due to cigarette smoke. But then what changed? When did people really start to drop off on their smoking? That was when the setting for smoking changed. After the 1980s and continuing to today, it became increasingly harder to smoke. There was way more friction associated with smoking. For example, where I live in Ontario, you can't actually see cigarette um, boxes or cartons. You can't see them. They're held behind a black screen behind the counter and you have to ask to see them. You can't just get triggered to want to smoke from seeing the the cigarette cartridge anymore. They're also now banned in movies um, and banned for advertisements. So when, when you can't see an advertisement for it or, or you see it in a movie, it also makes you less likely to be triggered to see them doing it or, and then think about it, that, that you want to do it. Another thing is that it's banned from a lot of public places, so you can't smoke in bars anymore. It used to be something that you would do out of habit, but now it's, there's a lot of friction involved with it. If you want to do it, at least in North America, you have to go outside and you know stand in the cold or stand away from your friends for a few minutes and do it then, and it causes a lot of friction because you'd rather be with your friends. Suddenly, when the setting changed, it became much harder to do it, and today, many people... Less, a less proportion of the population than in the past few decades, and, and it continues to get smaller, start smoking in the first place, which is fantastic, fantastic for their health, and a fantastic effort by public health agencies across um, very different countries who work together to reduce the abundance of smoking. But that's just what I want you to understand, is that people often do things, even though that they're harmful for them, because they're used to doing it, Okay. Just remember, you, if, you're, if you're used to it, it often sticks. And it's not necessarily, it's not a good thing. But just be aware that it exists, okay? It exists. Now, how do you change a habit that you don't want to do anymore? Well, we talked about repetition, but I want you to see in the cigarette story, the big thing here was the setting. Change the setting, change the cues, and you can change the habit. So what is a habit? What is the habit? We talked about it at the beginning. So you have a cue, and then you have a sequence of actions that make up the response. And the habit is the association between the cue and the response. The neurons that fire when the cue is seen stimulate the response. Those, and the neurons that make the response, and they get close together, they wire very strongly. They have a lot of dendritic receptors, if you want to get a little more into it. And then the cue stimulates the response. Boom, 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 boom. But take away the cue, 
okay, those smoking advertisements, the smoking cartridges that you can see because they're not blocked off and make it take away the cue of smoking indoors. Suddenly you can't see people smoking indoors anymore, at least in North America, well, in many North American regions. And then you don't get the response. Cut the cue, you cut the response, okay? This is so, so important. So a way that you can apply this to your relationship is if you find yourself talking to your partner in a way that you don't want to be talking to them, but it's kind of become a habit and, you, and you, you're doing it frequently, you can think about the times that you do it. It's actually a lot of people recommend that you keep a journal and you write about what you do at different times of your day, okay? That is good for building emotional intelligence. Write about what you do and how you feel at different times in your day. And then notice the sudden cues. Notice where you are at the time of day it is, what you're doing, that triggers that response. It could be a way that you feel. It could be a way that you act. And just change the cue then if it's something you don't like. So, for example, if you notice that you tend to get into arguments with your partner over things when you talk about work or something at a certain time of the day, change that cycle, change that cue by doing something else. For example, if you tend to get into arguments when you talk about cleaning, instead of talking about cleaning that time, change the time that you talk about cleaning or do it in a different room. And the cue to talk to your partner in a way that you don't like will now change. Now you have to think harder about how you want to speak with your partner. Okay. Now, this is actually really problematic when we talked about those roles. So people often get into roles, harmful roles in the relationship, which I don't, I don't want to say abuse, but it can be abusive, okay, sometimes, or, or just very detrimental to someone's self-esteem. So, for example, your partner, somebody else in your life, may be a cue for you to get really, really upset or really angry at them. And it doesn't matter what you do, you even you just breathe in the same room as you. And that cue is the trigger to get their habitual response to act in a hostile way. Okay? So, you might be part of the cue, okay? Which is, is it, it sucks. I'm, I'm sorry, but, but it, it happens. Okay? If it happens go to professional help and just talk about this cue trigger, talk about habit formation and work to help your partner through it with a professional, recognize that they're the cue for a lot of emotional dumping or things that you maybe don't, you don't deserve, quite frankly, to recognize that. Alternatively, you can change the setting. So if your partner is getting angry at you a lot in a specific setting, try different settings, for example, and, and see how that works. So if they get irritated with you a lot um, at a certain time of day or a certain place or over a certain topic, try change things around. You can also change the setting by trying something new with your partner. So for example, if the dynamic that you have with your partner isn't working, if they find it kind of boring, go to start a dance class together, start an art class together once a week, or join a choir together, okay? Or go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a temple or somewhere else together once a week. By, by engaging in these new activities, you're actually changing the setting because the rhythm of your, of your weekly tasks with them is changing. And that cue that you may have now is going to differ, okay? Maybe the cue for your partner, you may think that you yourself are the cue, but maybe the cue is... 10 days of the same thing over and over and over again, and they're getting bored. So you can change that by starting a new class together. 
people say that we live now in like the entertainment and the information age where people have so much time and so much ability to do anything. Like you want to find a dance class that used to be kind of hard. You had to talk to people. You had to figure it out. You know, you had to call a whole bunch of people. Now it's really easy. You just search on Google, like best dance classes around the neighborhood. And, you know, you look at other people's reviews and boom, easy. You can go try it out and you can maybe find a coupon online too, if that's what you're into. Okay, so if, if there's a problematic cue, then change the setting. Now, we talked about roles, how people tend to stick to specific roles out of habit and how this can be really, really, really harmful. And that is why limits are so important, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in an analogy now to help you unpack this and just understand it fully because it's so, so important. Not just to your relationship, but also to parenting and anything else that you do in life that involves an interaction with another person, Okay. In this analogy, I want you to think about a tree. Okay, think about a tree. I want you to visualize in your head the process of a tree from the very beginning when it's just being, you know, it's just sprouting out of the ground, like a little, little, um, like twig, you know, like a very narrow, like little, little trunk with little, little leaves slowly forming. And, you know, and it's only like a few centimeters tall. And slowly it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, soon it's a meter tall, it gets thicker, soon it starts growing branches, and soon he gets really, really, really tall, and those branches become so big, so dense. You know, like at a forest, have you ever, like, noticed the number of branches that trees have in the forest? I think that's kind of cool sometimes. I often don't notice, but notice how, you know, there are those trees with, like, really, really, really thick branches on them that come out of the base, and like, you know, the trunk comes up and then it splits into two or three and each branch has dozens of other branches, which each make dozens more other branches that come off of it. Okay. I want you to just visualize this now, like a big, big tree with thick, thick branches. Okay. Now, what do, what does this tree represent? Okay. This tree sprouting from something very small, from a seed all the way to a big tree with lots and lots of branches. What does that represent? And why am I bringing it up to you in this series on conflict resolution in this episode about habits? Well, guys, those branches and that tree, the tree represents us. That stem represents us across time as we age, as we get older and more experienced, okay? The older we are, the bigger the tree, okay? The older the tree, the rings come around it, okay? Those branches represent our tendencies, our habits, okay? Things that we start doing. For example, if as a young child, I mean, think about this, okay? As a young child, you really, really like science. You're so, so excited by science. What do you do? You have a little branch that starts to come out, okay? The science branch. Then you continue learning about science and watching Discovery Channel and other shows or reading books about the ocean or whatever else you enjoy. And then you get to high school and you start to take science courses and you really love them. You find them so interesting. That branch, guys, the tree grew over the years. That branch now that started off just a little tiny twig, okay? Like really, really, really small branch is now much bigger, okay? Much bigger. You took all those science courses in high school. You really loved them. You thought you want to continue. So now in your undergrad at university, you enroll in a science bachelor's, a bachelor of science. 
and you specialize in, say, biology. You love biology, so you do your focus in biology. And you get through it, you take all the biology courses, and you do your honors thesis at the end of fourth year, and you publish a paper maybe about your work. What's happening is that branch is getting bigger. That branch is getting thicker. It's getting much bigger. What used to be a little twig is now a big branch as that tree is aging. The tree aged 20-some years so far in this journey, okay? That size of the tree very much represents as well the, like, the size of us because trees can live for, for many, many years, okay? So just imagine now at this stage, the tree is about 20 in its early 20s, maybe 23 years old, okay? And that branch, which first started sprouting when it was like maybe five years old, is now a really, really significant and thick part of the tree, Okay, what happens now? Well, you really liked your bachelor's and you want to continue, so you do your master's of science, okay? And you focus again on like a, a specific topic of biology that you really like, and you keep going at it, and then you get a job in the field of biology, and you work as a biologist and a scientist for many decades, and then you retire. What happens, guys? That branch, which first formed in the tree when it was maybe six or ten, is now a fundamental, a huge part of the tree when the tree is 60. That branch, which used to be just a few millimeters across, is now like a meter in circumference or even more. It's a really, really thick, integral part of the tree now. Now, if you wanted to snip the branch when it was little, okay, if you wanted to stop that branch from forming, when the branch was first just a little twig, okay, a little twig, it was first, first forming. You can just, you can just break it off with your finger without any effort. So have you ever seen like a little tree sprouting out of the ground? It's so delicate. It's so small and so soft. Like, like you can twist it. You can, you can just with your fingers, you can break off that branch. Okay. And that branch is gone forever. That same branch will never grow again. Now, the difference is, if you let this continue for so many years, okay, and you let the branch grow, 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 year after year, decade after decade, by the time this tree is like 30 years old, that branch is no longer just a little twig anymore. It is now like a meter in circumference. It's a huge, huge, huge branch. It's like weighs a ton. It's like enormous, okay? And maybe it's like 20 meters tall, Okay. So how would you deal with this branch? Well, you can't just snap it with your, with your fingers anymore. It's not just a twig. You need like five trucks and like a chainsaw and a whole specialist team now to get rid of this branch. And it's like a major destructive thing to the tree now. You're going to see like a major change to the tree if you do it now, okay? Now, why, why did I bring this up here? It's because the same thing is with our habits, our tendencies, okay? And yes, sometimes in, you know, midway through life, we decide we don't like biology and we try to learn something else instead. That branch stops growing and a new branch gets bigger, okay? Trees have branches that are different thickness, different sizes. But the big idea here is if you let a branch keep growing on the tree for a very long time, it's just going to keep going. It's going to keep, keep, keep growing. And that's not... If, if it's a branch that you don't want, you don't want to wait until it's so late and that branch is so big to have to take it down. Now, this goes for parenting with, with 
tendencies of our children and also for the rules that we end up taking with our partners and with other people, including siblings, including parents in our life. So with regards to parenting, what this means is that very early on in childhood, we can guide children towards specific avenues that are best for them. For example, a lot of children have a twig, like a little branch emerge when that tree is just a sprout, maybe it's two years old, okay, it's a very young tree, to hit and to scream, okay, to hit, 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 to pull hair, to throw, to scream. And as parents, what we do is we clip this with our fingers while our children are still young, okay, still very moldable, still very, very like receptive to us and okay we have to help them a parent what a parent does is they 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 clip the branches that aren't good like that hitting branch that punching and pulling hair and throwing branch and they encourage branches that are very good like the saying thank you eating your vegetables okay the um being kind and sharing sharing with other children okay now, if parents wait a very long time, if you if you don't set limits with a child, you know, you just let them hit, 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 punch, 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 throw, 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 and things happen, you know, and, and it happens, and when they're six, they get away with it, when they're eight, they get away with it, when they're ten, they get away with it, well, suddenly when they become a teenager, they're going to be really strong in that hitting, aside from eventually it will be, it could land them in jail, like if, if you don't, if you don't extinguish that hitting habit by the time that the person is you know, four, three, and they do it when they're 18, they can actually end up in jail at 18, they can actually really, really hurt somebody, okay? Like, they're much physically strong. There's only so much damage that a two-year-old can do, but uh, a teenager can actually do a tremendous amount of damage. So it's so important for parents to clip that branch before it's too big, before they need, like, a whole specialist team of trucks and stuff to take it down. And what is that specialist team, guys? It would look like, like, professional counselors, therapists, um, and like treatment facilities, okay? So for example, if somebody goes to jail um, for hitting and assault, they could go through some sort of counseling program and some sort of treatment program to help them overcome their tendencies to do this and instead do the better thing. Now, when they're very young and multiple, it's much easier to just get it over with then than to wait until they're much older, okay, and it sticks, and that habit formed for so long, it's now such a fundamental part of who they are, and such a default way that they react to situations, because the more that they do it, the more that it sticks, okay, it's so much easier to just deal with it when they are young. Now, the same is with our partners, okay? If our partners are doing things that are really hurting us, for example, they're calling us names that we're just not okay with, they're against our personal limits, or they're just treating us in a way that we don't like, what we have to do is when they first start doing that habit, that, that thing, before it really sticks, okay? We have to change that, we have to clip it by enforcing limits, by saying, okay, remember, clear, consistently enforced, well advertised, that's not okay, and then remember clear, I don't like it when you call me and then you say the name consistently in forest. Every time that they do it, you tell them, you stop them and you say, I don't like it when you do this. I won't accept it. It's, it's part of my, it, it's a breach of my personal limits. You know, we're people, guys. People can be treated, have the right to be treated with respect. And we can encourage this by doing it in the most effective way, which I, I think is through setting these limits. Now, if we stop it enough when it's early, 
it's going to eventually stop, okay? The habit won't form. If we allow our partners or our siblings or our parents or our friends or anyone else to call us names for long enough, eventually they're just going to keep doing it. And this is why I think it's so, so, so important not to do those things that we talked about in the previous episodes on conflict. For example, like withdrawing, okay? If every time your partner comes to you, you just withdraw. I mean, if, if, they, if they come with you in conflict and they make you the scapegoat, for example, they blame everything on you and then you think you deserve it and you never say how you feel. You just withdraw and you say, you know, maybe I do deserve this or like, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. Then that's going to be your role in the relationship. You're going to just be treated like the scapegoat. Okay, because of the habit, that habit that was formed between you and your partner for your partner to treat you that way. Okay, and, and you don't want them to form a habit that way because the more they do it, the stronger it gets. Just like that branch gets stronger as we let it grow and we don't want to get it there to that point where it takes a chainsaw and a huge team of trucks to get it down. We want to clip it with our fingers while it's still small by enforcing those limits and saying, hey, it's not okay to speak to me that way and you know, be very clear what it is so you, you can target that branch um, and, and just say it's against my personal limits and make them well advertised. We talked about a limits book, a limits board. Um, these are tools that you can make with your partner. We have examples of them on our blog, learnlove.ca slash blog to help just make your limits very clear, okay? I, I, and I mean, like, you don't have to ask your partner every day what their limits are. You can just look at the wall. You can just look at the book that you made for yourself, like the rules that you made with your partner on what's okay, what's not okay, so that you know, like, where you are, okay? What's allowed, what's not. I recommend you do this early on before those habits and the, and the dynamic forms, okay? Now, we also talked in the analogy about guiding the good behaviors that we want to see. So in our children, for example, it's like encouraging them to eat their vegetables and to share and to be kind, okay, and to use their words instead of their hands, okay? So how do we do this? Well, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but like when trees are very young, I often see they put a pole next to the tree with like little handles almost, like uh, not handles, like things that like hug the tree almost to keep it upright, to, to make it so that it grows straight up. And then once the tree gets big enough, they take those like little handrail thingies like that hug the tree off because the tree, you know, it started in the right direction. It's going to keep growing in the right direction. And that's what we can do with our, with our children and with our partner is by encouraging the good behaviors that we want to see. What we're doing is like we're hugging the tree when it's young and we're setting it on the right path to grow in the direction that is is best, okay? And, and you can use this in a bad way too, especially when the tree is very young. So if you, if you disrupt a tree, if you point it in the wrong direction when it's very young, it can grow up and, and end up forming in the wrong direction, which will be very harmful for the tree. And this is so problematic, like we see in, in child abuse or early childhood trauma events can affect people for their whole, whole life because at the beginning, that tree is so malleable, it's so, it's so soft, it's so easily affected which is why it's so important then that we, we recognize as parents and as partners how important it is at the beginning to get it set on the right track. And I don't want, I don't want to scare you, but I just want you to really understand that the beginning is the best time often to start guiding the tree in the right direction. And how do we do this? Through positive reinforcement of the things that we want to see, through giving rewards for those good behaviors to help our partners learn and our children learn what to do. For example, when the child shares their toys with their friends, we 
give them a big, big hug. I mean, I hope that we hug them all the time because there's so many benefits uh, to to hugging, to physical touch, to cuddling. We'll explore more in an episode all about that later in the show. But to do something like giving a sticker, this was my favorite when I was a camp counselor. If a child did something that I liked and I was the counselor, that, that was according to our, our we had, you know, we had a rule chart that we put up, like an expectations chart. We made those limits very, very clear, okay? We, we went over those limits with the children when we made that rule chart and we put them on the wall and all the children decorated it and they painted their hands and they put their hands on the page to be a part of it, okay? It was really beautiful. So, so that's an example of clear and well-advertised, okay? And then consistently enforced, whenever a child does something that was against our expectations, like using their hands instead of their words, um, like hitting someone, you know, like another five-year-old instead of using their words, we, I would point that out and I'd say that I don't like it when you, and I like it more when you do this. And um, next time they do it, you point it out. Like, I love it that you used your words. I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. Okay, do you want to be my special helper? And they help you set up the activity or they help you coach something or something like this. Or just pointing out what the other children are doing really well too. I love the way you held the door for everyone. I love the way that you helped me that you offered to help me carry the, the ball to the field. I love the way that you drank your water when I asked everyone to drink. I love the way that you helped um, this person when they, um, you know, dropped their toy. You picked it up for them. I really like it. And give stickers. I mean, you don't give your partner a sticker. But, like, I'd, I'd give the children stickers. It's that, that reinforcement, that reward to show that the behavior is good. And then eventually, I didn't even need to give them stickers anymore. The habit just stuck. They just did it. We modeled, we guided them on the way that we want to see that's going to help them succeed in the world and in the camp, the summer camp, and like, you know, with, with the counselors and with their peers. We encourage sharing and using words and, and being kind. And it worked. It worked. So how do you do this with your partner? How do you give the reward? The reward could be like going out of your way to do something for your partner that they really like. So for example, let's say that you are just so happy with your partner, you can bring them flowers. You can make them a card and put it in their lunchbox, like a I love you card. You can bring them chocolates on your way home. You can offer to give them a massage. You can get them tickets to the movie theater and make a movie date together. You can call them at work and tell them that you're thinking about them. There are so many things that we can do to our partners to reward them, okay? When they do things that we like, um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say this in a negative way, like to try to get you to control somebody. I'm just saying that it really helps if we stop habits, if, if we stop negative things early before they form habits by clipping that branch really early while it's still very malleable before we need a big chainsaw and a whole team, you know, and through using like things to guide it to grow in the right path. Okay. So how do you guide it? You stop it when it's inappropriate, when it's against your limits. Remember, you have to make them very, very, very clear for it to work. And you give rewards when the behavior is being done properly. A big theme throughout this whole project, this Learn to Love project, is to encourage the idea that we often assume that we know what to do with our partners. We just assume that we know how they want to be treated okay, and that they know the way we want to be treated, and we know the way they operate, and they know the way we operate, because it's not the case. It's unfortunately, it's not the case, okay? We think we know what to do. I think we think we know what to do because we, we fear that we need to be perfect all the time, that we have to always do the right thing, okay? But 
the best thing that we can do is just ask. You don't know, you don't know what your partner is feeling or what your partner likes or how your partner wants you to react in the situation until you ask. Okay. And same thing, like you have to encourage your partner to ask you questions. You can model by asking them. The more we understand our partners, the more we can love them. And, and we understand them through getting to know them better. Remember from the emotional bank account, the more that we know them when times are good, the more times we connect together on an emotional level when times are good. We're filling up that emotional bank account with good habit-forming behaviors, okay? If we're always coming together and sharing experiences with each other, feeling together, sharing how we feel when times are good, we make a habit of coming together, guys. That emotional bank account relates very strongly to our habits, Okay, so we make the habit of coming together. We make the habit of asking how your day is. We make it a habit to share how we feel together. And then when times are bad, our emotional bank account is still very high. We have such a habit of coming together and sharing feelings that we do so even when times are bad, okay? And it's going to carry you through until you can work it out and things will get better again. So we're running out of time now, so I'm actually going to wrap this up here, and then in the next episode, I'm going to continue the discussion, and I'm going to talk about when things get kind of boring, how to mix it up in the relationship, the the double-edged sword of habits, and that the more that you do it, um, the more you keep doing it, because it's like kind of the neurons are are wiring together, firing together, it becomes, you know, habitual, you do it without thinking, but the more boring it gets, because you do it again and again and again, we're going to learn how to mix it up, how to make it exciting, in the next episode, where we continue our discussion on habits, wow, time flew in this episode, I hope that you found the content really interesting and meaningful in this episode, just to review, okay, habits are things that we do without thinking, they come from repetition plus reward, okay, They are good when they take cognitive load off repetitive tasks, for example, like walking, not thinking about how we need to step, and and like writing, not thinking about how we want to make the letter A, okay? And they're instilled, again, repetition. Remember, children spend thousands of times tracing letters before they learn to write them, okay? And um, people learning a language repeat a word again and again, people in uh, learning to walk, children learning to walk, repeat again and again. So do adults, God forbid, after a stroke, who learn to do it too. We can build habits again through this repetition. They're going to stick especially well when there's a reward associated with it, like the reward of having a healthier relationship dynamic. Habits are often based around setting cues. So the cue in the setting is going to lead to the action. The habit, so that cue action response is habitual. The habits formed there. A big example of this was with smoking. So when did smoking rates really drop? That was when suddenly it became much harder to smoke in public places, to see cigarettes in general, in, in doors, in advertisements, in movies, even to see cigarette packs at the store. When you remove that cue for the cigarette, by making it impossible to smoke while drinking coffee in the cafe or the bar, suddenly the action of smoking diminished, okay? The cue of seeing the package is gone now, the act- so, so the action diminished with it too. Now, if there's a cue, I want you to really think about this. It's good for building emotional intelligence. A cue that makes you feel anxious, that makes you feel sad, or makes you do something that you don't enjoy, like a dynamic that you have with your partner. I want you to think about it through keeping a journal of how you feel at different times of your day and what you're doing when you feel that, okay? When the events that you don't like occur with your partner, I mean, think about it. 
find the cue and then try change it. Remove that cue. If the cue is causing something harmful to you, change the get rid of the cue and you get rid of the action. So for example, if you don't want to buy coffee every day because you think it is just costing you a lot of money, um, and, and every time the cue to buy coffee is when you walk by the, the coffee shop on your way to work, take a different route so you don't see it. Get rid of the cue, get rid of the action, okay? The same thing goes with the way we feel. So like if, if checking Instagram is your cue for feeling bad about yourself because you see that all your friends, you know, are, are pretending to have some amazing life on it and you're wondering where you're going in life with everyone's pictures looking so happy and doing such crazy things, um, that's the cue to make you feel bad. So what action can you do? You can just open Instagram less, okay? Get rid of the cue and you'll have the action and the feeling associated with it less. We also talked about that tree analogy, how branches, they're very small at the beginning, okay? We can just with our fingers, we can, poof, you know, just get rid of them, like break them. But if we keep it going for decades, okay, we need a chainsaw and a team of like five trucks to, to get, to, to get rid of it. So that's why we have to stop things early by setting limits so that we don't get into harmful relationship roles, like being the scapegoat, being the thing that takes away all the blame. Okay. That is so, so, so important. That's why we need to use limits and be very consistent with them. Okay. And if you haven't been using limits to this point, it's never too late to start. It's always going to help you make things better regardless. I mean, I can't guarantee this, but I really believe that regardless of how long you've been in a relationship, you can still use limits to stop things that aren't okay as they form before they stick. In the next episode, we are going to talk about what happens when things get a little bit boring in the relationship, um, the double-edged sword of habits, like the more you do it, the more boring it gets a little bit, um, how to mix it up. We're going to talk more about the relationship roles, like if you are in a role that you don't enjoy, how you can get it, like how people get into that role a little bit more, what to do about it how to mix things up in the relationship, change cues and partner dynamics, like starting movie nights or starting other things or going out, okay? And so much more. Um, we're also going to continue the discussion on the tree and um, that analogy that we use with the tree, like what to happen if the branch is growing into near the roof of a house or near the window or something, like what, what to do about that, Okay. So thank you so, so much for joining me in this episode. I really hope that you found it meaningful, um, exciting, and, and helpful to apply to your relationship, not just with your partner, but also in parenting, with your friends, or any other avenue um, that you have in, in life. This, I, I really believe this content will work whenever there's a dynamic between two people. I'm so excited that you made it to the end uh, and that you learned so much in this journey. And I'm so excited as well to welcome you back in the next episode. If you have any comments about what you heard in the show, you can send us an email at contact.learnlove.ca. I read all the emails that come to us. I'd love to hear your feedback. And if you want to see more, you can check out our website, learnlove.ca, where we have all these podcast episodes listen, uh, listed. You can also listen wherever you get your podcasts, around all major podcast hosting services. And you can see some videos that we make there. So if you want to see written stuff, if you want to see videos, check out our website learnlove.ca and check out our social media channels we just got on instagram twitter pinterest and facebook learn to love media uh, you can find us on yeah learn to love media is instagram and twitter uh, learn to love is our pinterest and our facebook i'm super excited to continue our conversation there and 
that's the end of our episode so thank you for your time and learning and i can't wait to welcome you back in the next one